This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. When people play your songs better than you do, it's really irritating, trust me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, on repent. Yeah, these are all really... Um, well, these are ones that don't want answers. They're just saying things. They're saying something there, but I'm not going to answer that one. You know, I don't presume to be able to answer everybody's question. You know what I'm saying? Okay, don't think that I think that. In fact, if you want to stop asking questions, that'd be, that would be fine with me. Uh, yeah. Huh? I said Yeah, okay. Please teach on hesed. I've always thought of it as loving kindness. Uh, loving kindness is a word that Miles Coverdale invented in 1535, loving kindness is a, is a made-up word to translate hesed. That word was totally created to try in an effort to try to translate this untranslatable world, word. And then King James picked it up. But Miles Coverdale was the first person that did it. And it is. It's fundamental to the character of God. I, that's why I think it's so important. How has Brennan Mann affected your study of the life of Jesus? I don't know if he's affected my study of the life of Jesus, but he was a person who was as completely broken as any person I've ever known. And that was a good, you know, that helped me to see redemptively. He's very redemptively broken, but very, very broken. Brennan Manning, he's gone home to be with the Lord. Let your giving be in secret. I understand this, but I also want to set an example for my kids and my privileged friends <laughs> to, t- to take care of the poor. And so, I, yeah, I, I think it, it, the, the point is you don't do it to be seen. But if you're doing it and you encourage that as sort of a model to your children and to your rich friend, your spoiled rich friends, uh, <laughs> I think that's okay, you know. But again, if, it, if you're doing it to draw attention to yourself, Jesus says don't do that. But I, I think it's fine to share, the, share, that, share your model. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, was that any kind of statement about always praying under the fig tree? I don't think so. I think the fig tree is sort of a symbol of, of Israel. And I think at this point for Jesus, it's a symbol of the, the temple that's fruitless. That's a really weird passage if you, don't know, if you know that passage. He walks by, he wants a fig, but the text says it's not the season for figs. And then there's this whole long explanation. Well, there were early figs and maybe he was looking for, early, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I think the point is, again, Jesus does things And technically, for me, again, I won't be dogmatic about this, it's prophetic activity. He's doing, you know, the prophets did all these bizarre things. They would build little towns and besiege them and lay on one side for a while or cut off half their beards. That's prophetic activity that gets people's attention. And uh, I think Jesus scribbling in the sand was prophetic activity. I think the cursing of the fig tree was prophetic. Uh, Yes, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel, but I think in that passage it was symbolic of the temple that was fruitless. Right? Because uh, he's, he's uh, anyway. But that's just my opinion. Uh, again, that's why I've, this is a little uncomfortable for me. 
I'm not, there are very few things I'll be dogmatic about. The divinity of Jesus, I'll, I'll fight you over that. I will punch you in the nose over that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he that was George said that there are leaves on the tree. Well, the the figs the leaves come first, and then the figs the figs come first, and then the leaves. I you know I, I just can't get into all that. I because there are leaves on this fig tree, right? That he cursed, but no fruit. Yeah, but it wasn't the time for figs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See that, that just gets too complicated. I'm sorry. I mean, I, God bless you for that position, but I just gets too complicated. Um, I think the reason if there is one other than Jesus is creative, that Jesus never healed in the same exact way. is So we could not make a ritual or think we could heal by saying the same. Absolutely. I say yes. Amen to that one. You know, it, it, it's almost, you know, it, it's almost like some people think it's like magic and it's not magic, right? It's God's power. But if I say the right words or, huh, you know, that kind of stuff and uh, Jesus doesn't do it that way. And I do think he's, he's so creative and we're going to see, we're going to look at uh, Martha and I'm not going to give it away. Well, so I want to give it away so badly. Uh, no, I'm going to give it away. Uh, we're, we'll see it again uh, with Martha and Mary. Uh, you know, he, he goes, Lazarus has, has died, and they're, they're upset. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They would say the exact same thing to him. But Martha needs to talk to him, so Jesus talks to her. Mary needs to be someone to cry with her, and so he cries with her. He gives everyone what they, you know, he's, he's creative. He sees what our needs are, and, and uh, that's uh, just totally gave that away. So a really good, see, a person that was good at this wouldn't have just done that. I would have saved that, but I can't do it. You know, he could come before we're done here. <laughs> right. You do know that. You know, that, you know, Jesus goes, I don't know. You know, when is it going to happen? I don't know. You know, even the son, how does he not know unless he voluntarily decides he doesn't want to know? Okay. He is, that's something, the limitation that he took on. Um, can you speak uh, Codex? Uh, Amentius, uh, the oldest Latin Bible. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? And isn't the King James the most accurate and thoughtful? <laughs> I'm not going there. But there, there are, there are, the Bible is God's word in man's words. Okay? And we have thousands of manuscripts, thousands and thousands of men. And so, somebody told me there are, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that either. Um, but there, there are uh, lots of manuscripts. And the really amazing thing is that the, the differences are minuscule. I mean, the accuracy of the, of the uh, uh, sharing or the, uh, uh, the copying of manuscripts, it's, it's amazing how accurate you know, they are. And King James is uh, based on uh, older uh, uh, manuscripts. I mean, manus we have older manuscripts than than King James had when, when they did the translations. And so that's, that's one little reason why we, ha we need to keep, I think new translations are a good thing because we, language keeps changing. You know, there are, there are words that don't mean the same thing anymore. 
And, um, and language has changed since the 17th century. So I don't, I don't know, but I'm, again, I'm not dogmatic about any, any of that. And I worked on a translation. I'm not even dogmatic about it. Uh, never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic. Again, again, you want to talk about the divinity of Jesus? I'll punch you right in the nose if you want to fight about that. But uh, which translation is best? Uh-uh, not going to go there. Um, I, I mean, I think in NIV because I grew up with the NIV. And, but, okay, I'm, I shouldn't say this, but um, every, every translation has presuppositions behind it, and you need to know their presuppositions, okay? So King, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the, the presuppositions behind King James, but NIV, it's going to be the most readable translation. That was, you know, one of their fundamental ideas. And isn't it readable? But you give up things to make it readable. Um, for example, um, uh, in the first chapter of Mark, Mark's favorite word is uthos, immediately. He used that word like at the first of every paragraph or something. It, it happens seven, 17 times in the first chapter. Well, if you translated that literally every time, it would be unreadable. It would just sound, it would just be unreadable. Well, NIV kind of smoothed that out and used different words to translate the same word to make it more readable. Now, um, I, I know, well, my mentor was, was one of the translators of NIV. He did Mark and Hebrews for NIV. And this is a godly man who believes in the authority of God's word. He would take a bullet for God's word, for the authority of God's word. Um, and sometimes people, I think, are very uh, disrespectful to the, the modern translators. But let me, I know a bunch of them, and they're, they're trying so hard. One of the first meetings we had for CSB, I wasn't there, um, 17 translators, uh, and they started talking about doing the translation and what it meant, and a bunch of them started crying. They started weeping in the meeting because they were so, you know, burdened to do this well. So, um, yeah, so let's, let's cut the translators a little slack because it's a tough job. Um, what would you say to someone who thinks that there's nothing more to dissect or discern from the Bible? Um, well, I think of the quote, the Bible is the only book that reads you. It's the living word. You know, it's not, a, it's not Shakespeare. It's not like any other book. And, and consequently, you'll never hit the bottom of it. You know, in fact, right before Bill died, Bill said, I've only scratched the surface. Um, so, yeah. I don't know about dis dissect, but you'll, you'll never get to the bottom of it. Uh, you'll see things. I saw something uh, yesterday that I'd never seen before. Am I going to talk about today? Um, well, I'll give it away even if I am going to talk about it. Um, oh, yeah, Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. There's that long, chap, uh, long section. And, and part, of, part of the give and take in that section is someone from the crowd says, we know his mother and father, okay? And, um, but, and it, but at the end of that section, in almost a, a, a parenthetical statement, it said, he said this when he was in the synagogue in Capernaum. So for the first time, I thought, the people in Capernaum know Jesus. I understand there may be no one his mother, but his father? That, that's a little hint about maybe Joseph was, had still been around, or maybe both, both of them moved with him to Capernaum. We just don't know. Ten cents out of $100. But for the first time, I saw, well, the people in Capernaum know Jesus' mother and father? Hmm. Have you ever heard that? I never heard that. Um, I don't even know what to do with it other than, you know, I would expect Nazareth. If they said that Nazareth, that would make perfect sense. But Capernaum? 
Uh, and I expect that, you know, that after Joseph died, Mary was with him. Uh, but we know that Mary, um, Mary and the brothers show up when he's in, in Capernaum and they think he's crazy. So I don't know. So yeah, you never get to the bottom of it. Um, if the spirit that is cast out of a person, if the spirit that is cast out of a, a person why does Jesus silence the demon? Would the, would the fact that the demon knows his name promote his teaching? Um, and again, Bill Lane used to say, Jesus doesn't want the confession of who he is coming from the lips of demons. That's what Bill used to say. So I, I go with that. Um, what happened to the oral law? It's been codified in the Mishnah. Between 200 BC and 200 AD, the rabbis put it together into this one book that's about that thick called the Mishnah. And you've heard of the Talmud? The Talmud is 36 volumes commentary on the Mishnah. So it went from one volume to 36 volumes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you sing, I want to know you in the now? Okay, we'll put that over here. Did you say Jesus is not living... Did you say Jesus is not the living water, but the source of it? Uh, what, is, what is the living water, though? It's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is very, there's another symbol for the Holy Spirit that I can't, I can't remember, but he'll say that, that he's the source of that, but he won't say he is that. <clears throat> he just differentiates between that, between himself and the Holy Spirit at that point. But, but uh, that's, again, that's one of those mysteries, because uh, he'll breathe on people and say, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is his breath, in one sense, but um, to, 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 you're using your, your Greek mind to think, oh, it's this, and here's the definition, and it's this, and this, and this. And, and I'm not saying that the, the, the biblical truth is not, you know, does not, isn't consistent and that sort of thing, but there's just a different way of thinking behind most of the Bible than Greek philosophical thinking that's based on nouns. Um, does that make any sense? Okay. Um, so he's, yeah, he's not the living water. But he kind of... Oh. Why do you think Jesus healed the man with excuses when he was seemed to be so unthankful? Um, well, we're going to look at this passage in, in, in Luke 6.35, which I and beginning to think is the most incredible thing Jesus ever said. When he said that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. I mean, in terms of revealing God's heart, that's maybe one of the, let me say it that way. I won't be dogmatic. It may be one of the most significant things he said. God is kind. And I think that's Hesed. God shows Hesed to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's why he healed that guy. I mean, Jesus is, is revealing who God is. God is the person who, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's who God is. And, uh, and uh, wow. Don't babble like the Gentiles. Is, is that like speaking in tongues? No. Um, no, it's a reference to long prayers and wordy prayers, not, not uh, speaking in tongues. Uh, with Jesus healing, could you speak to 
at times it appears he is looking for signs of faith. Yeah, that's really interesting too, because every now and then Jesus will say, it's your faith that's healed you, right? And clearly it's your faith in Jesus that healed you. But again, he heals people who don't even know who he is, so you don't have to have faith. He, his lordship is absolute. He can, he could, there's no rules. He can do whatever he wants to do, okay? Uh, and so he can heal someone who doesn't know, but I think when he heals someone uh, and he says, your faith has healed you, I think that's just him pointing away from himself again. I mean, he could say, yeah, aren't you lucky that I laid hands on you? You know, you give to my cause or come be my, you know, get on my bandwagon. He doesn't do that. He, you know, someone will thank him for healing and he'll say, it's your faith that healed you. I just think that's his countenance. And, and one of the things that I want to do through all this, I want to understand the way his mind and his heart works as much as the Holy Spirit allows me to understand him. And, um, I do, I do think that's part of his character. He, he just points away. From, I'm only saying what God told me to say. I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. And I think if we had been contemporaries with him, I think that would have been a, a remarkable thing about this person's character. He's the son of God. And yet, you know, Paul says, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, he, he empties himself. He could have grasped equality with God, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now, you know those verses, but let's integrate those into our image of who Jesus is. He lets go of all that. And, but the interesting thing is in that hymn is, that's why he's exalted. Why is Jesus Lord, according to the hymn, the oldest hymn that we think exists, Philippians 2, 6 to 11? Why is Jesus exalted to, to being Lord? Because he's a servant. His lordship comes from his servanthood. His exaltation comes from his humility. I don't know. If you don't think that's cool, that's my theological word. If you don't think that's cool, there's just something wrong with you. <laughs> um, what does your tattoo say? Oh, my goodness. Um, what made you get it? Leviticus, exclamation point. Uh, Leviticus uh, forbids marking yourself for the dead. Okay, I'm, I didn't mark myself for the dead. But if it, if it offends you, I'm, I, am, I am sorry. I'm not going to be cavalier about it. Uh, but um, I don't think it's, it, the Bible strictly says you can't have a tattoo. I think Leviticus is talking about something else. Um, but my tattoo is Hesed. Because I, when, when I got so enthralled with this word, I wrote a book about it. I'm, I told myself, I'm going to spend the rest of my life understanding, you know, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's, that's why I had, and, and um, God forgive me if, if I've misinterpreted that, but uh, um, <laughs> thank you. I would expect that from you. Okay, let's, uh, let's, uh, let me finish up um, uh, Jesus and the, the rabbi and the Sabbath violations, and, and we've got a couple of other things uh, to look at, okay? Uh, Sabbath violations... Um, what, what was it we were talking about? Jesus the rabbi. Yeah, Jesus the rabbi. I'm finishing that, that up, okay? Good, okay. Um, this is so complicated. Uh, I've got six Sabbath violations. Uh, the, the disciples plucking grain, that was harvesting. That was seen as harvesting, and you can't do that. Technically, you had to use a, a tool, so they weren't really breaking, even they weren't breaking the biblical law. Does Jesus ever break the biblical law? No, he's perfect. 
and so they're in the corners of the field and the, the provision was made that poor people could glean from the corners of the field and, uh, and they're not using uh, implements to harvest, so they're not harvesting. And, and stop and think about this. They're so hungry, they're eating raw grain. Just think about that. for I mean, try that sometime. Run your finger up a stalk of wheat and get the grains and chew, and chew it up and see, you know, see what that's like. That. Uh, so disciples plucking grain, healing with the withered hand. It was on the Sabbath. Uh, healing the woman with the crooked spine. It was on the Sabbath. Healing the man with dropsy. It was on the Sabbath. Telling the man to carry his mat after he healed him. And we saw that yesterday. It was on the Sabbath. And making mud. Uh, to heal the guy in John 9. Those are all, those were all seen as Sabbath violations, but they're not violations of the biblical law. They're violations of the oral law. We're, we're clear on that. Have I just beat that to death? Okay. Uh, I do not any, want anyone to think that Jesus would ever break the law. He's perfect. He, you know, and I'll, I'll fight you on that one too. The perfection, the implications of the perfection of the perfection of Jesus, I think are just amazing. I still meditate those. He's perfect. What does that mean? That means everything he says is perfect. And, and if he doesn't, if he doesn't say something, it was the perfect time not to say something. I mean, I will go as far with the perfection of Jesus as, as, uh, as you want to go. So uh, a couple more things of Jesus and, as a rabbi, and, um, and we'll move on. Uh, in Matthew 15, Jesus attacks uh, the oral law, and he redefines what being clean and unclean mean. I, just, I showed you how to wash your hands, this preoccupation with clean and unclean. The shadow, if the shadow of a leper passes over you, you're unclean. There are all sorts of permutations of clean and, un- and unclean. And I think at one point, he just has enough. And uh, this, this is that point in Matthew 15. <clears throat> then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. This is an investigative committee that they have the authority if Jesus uh, is accepted by a town and he's de- determined to be a heretic, they can ban that town. I mean, they have a lot of authority. So they've come from uh, Jerusalem and they ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of their elders? They don't wash their hands like they're supposed to, okay? And so this has to do with clean and unclean. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God? See what he just did? He answered a question with a question. Is that cool? And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? That's the oral law. When he says tradition, that's what he means, the oral law. For God said, honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you help, help you might have received from me is a gift devoted to God. That's a Korban gift. And what they would do, they would take the, the money that should have, they should have been taking care of their parents with, they would dedicate it to the temple. That doesn't mean they give it to the temple. That means they dedicate it to the temple, okay? Um, and that controversy is picked up again in Mark 7, 11. Um, <clears throat> um, Thus you nullify the word of God, biblical, for your tradition. See, is that not clear? Yeah, your tradition is the, is the Mishnah, is the oral law, and the word of God is the Torah. Uh, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are rules made by men. That's it. 
And Isaiah saw it coming. And don't, don't roll your eyes. We do the same thing. We come up with extra biblical ideas. People shouldn't do this, shouldn't, you know. Uh, a, a dancing foot and a praying knee can't be on the same leg. That kind of, that's what I grew up with as Southern Baptist. Uh, you laugh, but, you know, yeah, there it is. Um, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. The old orthodoxy, new reality. What goes into a man's mouth uh, does not make him unclean. He's redefining clean and unclean. What, but what comes out of his mouth is what makes him unclean. Okay? Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended <laughs> when they heard this? I love that. Wait, hold up. Don't you know that you offended these guys? If Jesus ever rolled his eyes, it was right here. Oh, gosh. Yo, I remember in the, verse, uh, the verse that always hurts my feelings when I read it when, is when uh, he says, how much longer do I have to put up with you? Every time I read that, I think, you know, that really hurts my feelings when you say that. Because I think you must say that about me like daily, hourly. Yeah, do, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. And he's going to tell a parable of the weeds later on. Uh, leave them, they're blind guides. If, if a blind man leads a blind man, they'll both fall in a pit. Uh, Peter said, explain this parable to us. Are you still so dull? Do you feel the emotionality of that? You know, how much longer do I have to put up? I mean, imagine what it must have been like. They didn't under, really didn't understand anything. I mean, they really didn't understand anything until the Holy Spirit came, right? Remember, the Holy Spirit comes, and they remember that they had done these things to Jesus. All, the things they, all of a sudden, they perceive these things because the, what he does is perceived spiritually, okay? And the old orthodoxy, you know, that's Nicodemus. You know, how can these things be? That's who Jesus is in that world. He's this, he's this new reality. And uh, how can these things be? So are you still so dull? Don't you see, so you can explain, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes to the stomach, then out of the body, uh, but then the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things make a man unclean. So there it is. And that maybe, that makes perfect sense to me. I think it's elegant. So it's not me getting, you know, holding the right handle and doing this right that's real uncleanness. It's, it's, the, it's the uncleanness that comes out of my mouth that makes me unclean because it, it demonstrates what's in my heart. I, I think that's elegant. I think that's brilliant. Okay, quickly, let me talk about Jesus in the synagogue. Oh, I got plenty of time. Um, Jesus in the synagogue. Interesting. Uh, two two uh, most important words uh, in Judaism, synagogue and rabbi, aren't in the Hebrew Bible. Synagoge is a Greek. I mean, synagogue is a Greek word. It's not even a Hebrew word. It's, uh, about, it's, about gather, it's a gathering place. And rabbi is not a, an Old Testament or Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Bible word. It's a, it's a new innovation. So isn't that interesting? So let me talk... Uh, I've got. A, I worked through this. Uh, did my home? Did your homework for you? You're welcome. Okay, there are 34 references to the synagogue in the gospel. There are five statements summarizing Jesus' ministry. Um, four times he's described as preaching there. Three times he's described as teaching there. Uh, 
Two times it says he's healing. Once he's casting out demons. Uh, he's, he's referred to in two synagogues in Galilee and one synagogue in Judea. So that's a quick overview. He, his ministry begins there. I'll, I'm, I won't say that because I'll probably say that in my notes. Eleven times the word synagogue occurs in statements of Jesus. Is this helpful? Okay, I'm not getting any like energy back from you, so there it is. Uh, we, here, would you like an energy drink? Just share this amongst yourselves. Um, the multiplication, multiplication of the energy drink. Um, okay, so 11 times Jesus refers to the synagogue. In Matthew 6, don't be like the hypocrites in the synagogue. Um, in Matthew 10, uh, actually in three, three different places in the Gospels, I'm not going to give you all the, list, all the references, he says that they will flog you in their synagogues. One of the, 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 the things that kept you in line is what's called synagogue discipline. And Paul submitted himself to synagogue discipline. He boasts about the fact that he received these 39 stripes. That's synagogue discipline. That's not Romans. Sometimes you'll see a movie, a, a Jesus movie, and they're flogging him, and they're counting the lashes. The Romans didn't count the lashes. That's incorrect. That's a de detail that's wrong in most of the Jesus movies. Jewish people did 39 stripes. It's supposed to be 40, but that you put a fence around it. You do 39 in case you didn't count right. And so you leave one off for the mercy of God. And synagogue discipline is administered with rods. I mean, it's, not, it's no picnic, but it's not the same thing as a Roman flogging, which, where you don't count the stripes. People were, frequently didn't survive the flogging, and the only stipulation was, and this is the Juli, in the Julian Code, a man would be flogged until the flesh hung from his back. That's the only stipulation. There was a, one, of, one of the wives of one of the Caesars was flogged and she lost an eye. Because apparently, when, and, and flogging is with leather, leather strips with glass and bone and lead balls tied into them. So it's, it's horrific. Not the same thing as synagogue discipline, okay? But... Synagogue discipline is no, is no uh, picnic either. So they will flog you in their synagogues. And in Matthew 23, he says, Hypocr hypocrites love the best seat in the synagogues. In the synagogues, if you go to the one in Chorazin, there's the seat of Moses there, the stone place that's the, the, you know, the seat of honor. Uh, Luke 11, he talks about Pharisees love the best seats in the synagogue. In Luke 12, well, when, when you are brought up before the synagogues, don't be anxious. So he foresees the fact that, you know, when, when the movement starts, the synagogue is going to try to shut it down. Uh, uh, Luke 20, beware of scribes who love the best seat in the synagogues. Uh, Luke 21, they will deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. In John 18, I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple, but you didn't stop me. It's something like that, he says. There are five separate scenes of Jesus in the synagogue. Uh, the first one is in Mark 1 and Luke 4. And he exorcises a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. And there's no uh, opposition to him. And that's something I'm beginning to... I want to understand the trajectory of the ministry of Jesus. And it makes perfect sense that at the beginning, there's no opposition. They're, the Pharisees haven't come down from Jerusalem yet to investigate him. And so he's fairly, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, no opposition, you know, that sort of thing. But once the movement gets some 
you know, uh, notoriety, then he starts being investigated, and then he can't do anything right, right? Every, no matter what he does, he heals somebody, and and what is he gets in trouble because he told them to pick up their mat. They don't see that he healed somebody. Did he heal someone who was born blind? They don't see that. They see that he did it on the Sabbath, and you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. It's just it's crazy making. It's crazy making. So Capernaum, uh, the second scene of Jesus in the synagogue. Uh, there's no reference to the city, but he, uh, this is Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 6. He heals a man with a shriveled hand, and that's when the Pharisees decide they're going to kill him. At one point, they say, that's the only thing we can do. We're going to kill him. And uh, later on, they say, you know, if we don't, if we don't get rid of this guy, uh, the Romans are going to come and take our place. And when they say place, they mean the temple. The temple is called Hamakom, the place. And what's interesting to me is what they were worried about is exactly what happened. They weren't paranoid. They knew, they knew exactly what was going to happen. And that's what did happen. The Romans came and took their place. So in uh, the third time he's in Nazareth, and we're going to look at that this morning. It's Sabbath. And he teaches, he teaches, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Initially, the people are amazed, Luke 4, but later on they become enraged and they want to throw him off a cliff. And I've been to that cliff. I've, it wouldn't, wouldn't be good. Four, uh, he's, there's a reference to uh, Capernaum. Uh, there's no reference to the Sabbath, and that's where he teaches on the bread of life. Uh, this is John 6. The Jews uh, argue amongst themselves, and many of Jesus' disciples desert him. Who, you know, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow it? And they leave. And he looks at Peter and says, you can leave too? Peter says, I got no place else to go. Yeah. And finally, number five, there's no reference to the Sabbath, but he teaches and heals, and there's a woman with a crooked spine. The synagogue leader is indignant that he did it, and his adversaries are humiliated, but the crowd rejoices. Okay, quickly. Oh, I got plenty of time. Um, I want to uh, talk about uh, inappropriate synagogue talk. Inappropriate synagogue talk. Uh, Luke 14, 15 through 30, John 6, 22 through 59. Let me repeat that. Luke 4, <laughs> Luke 4, 15 through 30, and John 6, 22 through 29. Um, I'll just, I'll just kind of scan through my notes. I'm not going to read it all. My, my note says, newsflash, Jesus is a Jew. But he is a Jew at a time when Judaism is divided. Now, it's still fragmented, just like Christianity. I mean, Christianity is so divided, so many uh, in divisions. So, um, again, Isaiah Gaffney, one of the great Jewish scholars, says we must speak of Judaisms in Jesus' day. Israelite religion, I talked about this yesterday, Israelite religion and rabbinic Judaism. Israelite religion rabbinic Judaism. Uh, why do I make so much of this point? You're asking yourselves, no doubt. Will you just drop it? I get it. Um, we will be looking at Jesus in the synagogue, but the synagogue wasn't then what is, it has become today. It's like picturing Paul at First Baptist. You know, the church in Paul's day is not what it is now. You know, it's, it's developed over time. So, um, so, uh, let me talk about first century synagogue. The synagogue in Jesus' day also wasn't one thing. 
The synagogue in Nazareth may have uh, differed in many ways from the one in Capernaum. There was a lot of diversity. Uh, one of the mysteries that I, I can't, no one can explain this to me yet, and I've worked on this. So many of the first century synagogues have zodiacs in the floor. That should bother you. It drives me nuts. And the tour guides will say, well, the 12 tribe, uh, it's, it represents the 12 tribes. You know, Taurus the bull is Issachar the ox and, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, they're images. Not supposed to have images. And they're in the floor. And no one can explain this to me. Okay, so, um, and don't come up and say, I looked on the internet and I found this article. I've read, I've read it if it's on the internet and I'm, <laughs> I'm not satisfied. Uh, synagogue isn't even a well-defined term. It's a Greek term that means gathering. Uh, but is it a building or is it an assembly or is it both? Um, uh, here's activities. Without question, the synagogue was a place for reading and teaching the Torah. 100% of the people agree on that. Good. But it's a place of communal prayer. Um, it's a place for communal meals. It's a town hall and a court of law met there. Josephus describes this. And, but it's a guest house. Most of them had guest houses attached to them. Uh, to complicate things... There are two kinds of synagogues, as far as we know. There's an, an association uh, synagogue uh, in Acts 6, speaks of the synagogue of the freedmen. So these are ex-slaves that started a synagogue together. Uh, but then there are also public synagogues. Uh, what does this all mean? The synagogue is the center of spiritual thought life of a town. That's, that's, we can safely say that. Uh, to convince the synagogue is to win the town. That's, that's uh, I think, a good idea. So both Jesus and Paul begin their ministries in the synagogue. It was, it was the basic venue for his ministry until the crowds grew so large that he had to move outside. So let me look at two passages of Jesus saying what he shouldn't say in the synagogue, inappropriate synagogue talk. So the first one is, in, is Nazareth. This is Luke 4, 13. Are we good? Are we together? Am I talking too fast? Okay. Okay, just a little fragile up here, just not, not sure. Um, this is right after the temptations in the wilderness. Uh, when the devil had finished all these temptations, he left him until an opportune time. He'll come back in 833. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So there's kind of a summary of the early part of the ministry. Very popular, very popular. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, um, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He is an observant Jew. He goes to the synagogue on Shabbat. And he stood up. You always stand up to read. You sit down to teach. When, he, when you sit down, that's a sign you're going to teach. You stand up to read. Okay? So he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So this is the part of the synagogue service. There's the Torah part. And then there's the Haftorah, the after the Torah part. So this is the Haftorah part. Somebody's phone's ringing. I can't believe I hear that. Um, 
So, so he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. The scroll, well, you, roll, un, you roll, unroll it sideways. Uh, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Therefore, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now stop and think about this. This is the first event after the temptation in the wilderness. Get get the flow here. Jesus is baptized. What happens? God's voice, God speaks. This is my son. Okay, you with me? The very next thing that happens, and if you, if you go to Israel, you'll see you basically, where, he, where he's baptized in the Jordan, he turns around, and then there's the desert. You basically walk across the street, and you're in the desert. Okay, so he walks into the wilderness, and what does Satan do? He challenges what God just said. Satan says, if you're the son of God, God has just said this is my son. If you're the son of God, do this. Turn the stones into bread. If you're the son of God, do this. So it's a direct challenge to his sonship that Jesus obviously wins because he's Jesus, right? But then the very next thing is he goes back home to his home synagogue. I'm guessing he grew up there. And Nazareth is not very big. It's about as big as a football field at this point. It's a very small little village. Um, so he goes back to his home synagogue and he, he reads this passage from Isaiah uh, that really, the, the year of the Lord's favor is jubilee. It's a reference to the jubilee year where we have cancellation of debt, we have freedom for slaves, and we have a, a whole year of Sabbath, a whole year of rest. He hasn't chosen the 12 yet. The ministry has just begun. Okay? So that's the timeline. So he reads this passage, having just survived the temptation of, of, uh, in the wilderness, and he reads this passage that describes who he is and what he's going to do. So he rolls up the scroll. He, sorry. Okay. The question is, was that <laughs> was that passage selected before beforehand, or did he? And the answer is, we just don't know. Again, we just don't know. Um, you know, I, my guess is it was selected beforehand, and this is the time, timing is the Lord's perfect. But even if he chose it, it's still, it's still perfect. Um, but maybe you know, during the, and again, see, we don't know. Now we know there's this course of reading, and you read certain passages in certain days. We're not sure if they did it that way then. We just don't know. Um, but, uh, but anyway, his, his, uh, this passage, and, and I would like to believe, my, one of my questions to Bill was, you know, when did Jesus realize that he was special? He was God's, you know, God's anointed, and he was the Messiah and that sort of thing. And Bill believed that as a child reading the, the Torah, he gradually realized that that was him. I mean, maybe the Lord just showed him one, in one sort of big revealing moment. Again, we don't know. There's no, I, would, I need to know that, but the Bible thinks I don't need to know that. Um, <laughs> But maybe this was one of those passages that as a young boy he read and he realized, this is God's call on my life. I don't know. But, uh, but it, the, re- the reference is to, to Jubilee. And, um, um, and is, isn't it interesting that we have no record that the, uh, the Jews ever celebrated Jubilee? I mean, here's this thing that God has given you, this wonderful gift. All debts are canceled. Well, if you're part of the rich elite, 
You don't want that, right? If you're a slave, you're set free. If you're a Jewish slave, you're set free. And then you take a year of sabbatical rest. That's what Jubilee celebrates. We don't even know what the word Jubilee means. It sounds like the word for trumpet sound, but we're not really sure. Um, I, I wrote a song called Jubilee, and in, in, in your voice we hear a trumpet sound. I put it in there because um, I'd read that in some article somewhere, some boring academic article that I read. Uh, you're welcome. So, so anyway, he rolls the scroll back up, he gives it to the attendant, and he sits down, okay? The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? He sat down. He's going to start teaching, okay? Um, they're all fastened on him, and they're, they're waiting for a lesson, a little sermon, and what do they get? He said to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And we get that because they're in Nazareth. They know Joseph, okay? Not, not like John 6, we're in the Capernaum, but they still know Joseph, apparently. Um, so he gets this acceptance. And, he, you know, does he pat him on the back and say, thanks, I'll, I'm doing the best job I can? No, what does he say? Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Uh, and only Luke gives that passage, uh, physician, heal yourself. Because Luke was a doctor. And he's interested in that. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted. Here comes the inappropriate part. <laughs> no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in, I, in Elijah's time. This is 1 Kings 17. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, a region of Sidon. And there were many people in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. What's the upshot of this synagogue sermon that's inappropriate? The, the basic idea is God reaches out to Gentiles before he reaches out to Jews. How do you think that would go over in the synagogue? Not good. Okay, so after that, sin okay, after that sermon, what, do you, what you expect, what happens is exactly what you would expect to happen. All the people in the synagogue were furious. Well, wait, a minute ago, verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed. Hmm. But then he preaches this little sermon that, God reaches out to Gentiles, or at least twice in the, in the Hebrew Bible, God reach, reached out to Gentiles before he reached out to Jews. And that does not go over so well. All the people in the synagogue were furious. Um, and they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And there is no word of Jesus ever going back to Nazareth after that. Um, in Matthew 9, 1, Capernaum will become his own city. So apparently, it looks like, again, I won't be dogmatic about this, but it looks like after this he relocates to Capernaum, which is actually a much better base for ministry anyway. Okay? So here's one other, yeah, okay. Here's one other passage, and this is the one I've been referring to, the John 6 passage. Um, this is John 6, 25. But, well, we've already done 25 through 37, so let me start at 38. We, you, don't, you, wanna, you don't wanna look at it again, do you? Let's, 
Let's skip down to what we haven't looked at. Okay. I mean, I love reading the Bible, but okay. Uh, verse 30, 38. So what he's talking about is, is uh, re- work and that he, God put his seal of approval on him and that the work of God is to believe. And he refers to mana, which we talked about, the exclamation, question mark and exclamation point. Um, uh, and Jesus says he's the bread that come, came down from heaven like the manna came down from heaven. And in 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Okay, so now this is 38. Uh, for I have come down from heaven like the manna, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So we know it's John, because that's, that's how Jesus refers to God in John. God is the one who sent him. Jesus the, is the sent one. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now that sticks on his mind too, because he repeats that a bunch of times in this passage. He's preoccupied with the fact that the ones that God has given me, I'm going to raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's a second time he repeats that. See how his mind works? At this, the Jews began to murmur. This is the same word that's used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. This is the same word that's used of the Jews grumbling in the wilderness. So we have a parallel going here, okay? Um, So the Jews began to murmur against him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We're in Capernaum in the synagogue, and they know his father and mother. I don't understand that, how they know him, but uh, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Um, Stop murmuring amongst yourself, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And my note says, how could they? How could you possibly come to him? I mean, he's the scandal on, he's the stumbling stone. Unless God enabled you, how could you possibly do it? Um, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. That's like the fourth time he said that. Um, Bonhoeffer says, the call of God makes everything possible. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has, eternal last, has, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Second time he's repeat that. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. It wasn't living bread, right? I've got bread to eat, you'll never die. Um, I've got water to drink, you'll never, I can provide water and you'll never die, living water. Uh, but here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats this bread, he will live forever. Beautiful. Now, here's where it goes sideways. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And, you know, and what happens is exactly what you'd expect to happen. Then the Jews began to argue. These are kosher Jews. They don't even eat pork. I imagine that there were people listening to this who almost get physically sick. This is Jesus being the scandal on, the offense, the rock of offense. Everyone stumbles over him. Some people are broken 
and some people uh, are, are redemptively healed, but everyone stumbles over Jesus. So uh, the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't understand he's speaking metaphorically. Jesus said to them, amen, amen. This would be the perfect time for him to say, well, calm down. You know, this is a metaphor. So the manna is this, and I'm just saying that I'm like the manna. That would have been the right thing to say. But what does he say? Uh, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, now he's an ad, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up for the last day. See how that's stuck in his mind? And okay, that, he, why didn't he just stop there? You know, it's getting a little tense, tense, but maybe there's some people that understand he's speaking metaphorically. But now what does he say? For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, he means the reality of, of, of the new reality, okay? Not old orthodoxy where flesh is flesh and blood is, you know, blood. He's talking about this new reality, okay? Where the, he's talking about something deeper. Re, it's real drink and it's real food. Whoever eats my flesh and drink my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, there it is again. And I live because of the Father. So no one who feeds on, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Uh, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And here comes the really bad news. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Oh, the synagogue that was donated by the Roman soldier. We know about that place. On hearing it, many of his disciples, not casual people standing on the outskirts, many of his disciples uh, heard this and they said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling um, about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And there's the word for scandalon. Does this cause you to be offended? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. That's the closest thing to an explanation you're going to get. All this eat my flesh and drink my blood. The flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit that matters. I'm speaking spiritually. That's, that's I think, the upshot of what he's saying. Um, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Yet, there are some of you who do not believe. And this is... Heartbreaking. This is a little whisper. John loves to whisper and explain things to you. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Imagine knowing that from the very beginning, having meal fellowship with Judas for three years and knowing he's the one who's going to do that. And I'm sure he was still loving and kind. And uh... He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. My note says nobody possibly could. And we'll stop here. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So there's the big you know, peak. And then beginning with this passage, I, I, suggest, I suggest to you a subtle erosion begins. And I don't know how far down it goes, but I think his ministry begins, the popularity of his ministry begins to erode because he starts saying things that are really difficult for people to understand. Like, you have to take up your cross and follow me. 
right? Uh, and that, and like, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to, we're, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to be bound. I'm going to be spat upon. He knows exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life, which they never hear. Um, so... Yeah, I'll stop there. I have one more thing, but I think we're, we're out of time. Okay? And so when we come back, we're going to look at the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus is a prayer warrior. <laughs>